You're listening to Revenge of the Drive-In from the Grandma Sophia's Podcast Network. This is the podcast where we watch and discuss two movies randomly selected from a list of over 1,700 and discuss with the intention of determining whether or not this makes for a good drive-in double feature. We're interested in horror films, exploitation movies, and other similar genres. We do go into the plots in detail, so if you're concerned about spoilers, we encourage you to check out these movies before listening. Follow us on Twitter for any updates, at DriveInPodcast. And without much further ado, I'm your host, Patrick, and I'm joined by... What's up, man? This is your boy, Josh, handsome young Delph Ramos, coming live to you from the Bronx. How's everyone doing? How's my man, Patrick, doing? In the words of Jim Carrey and Liar Liar, I'm a little upset about a bad sexual episode I had last night. I can't complain in that department. I'm doing pretty well for <laughs> that's, that's my go-to response whenever I get that kind of question. Damn, how do people usually respond to that? They're confused. You know, Liar Liar isn't the best-remembered Jim Carrey vehicle. It's one of his better ones, I would say. Definitely top ten. Well, he did, it's definitely top ten. He didn't make that many movies. I feel like he does have that many movies, though, doesn't he? He's got, like... He's got two... I mean, well, yeah, but, like, Batman Forever might be in his top ten. I mean, I mean, we gotta draw the line somewhere here. Batman, Put it in your I top mean, five. I mean, if I'm thinking Jim Carrey, I would say, you know, Ace Ventura, The Mask, Batman Forever, Cable Guy, Dumb and Dumber, Liar Liar, Truman Show, Bruce Almighty. Truman Show is my favorite. I adore Truman, the Truman, Truman Show. is also my favorite. And then, like, yeah, you're right. He doesn't have... Eternal Sunshine. Those movies are all going, yeah, Eternal Sunshine, and then that's it. I wouldn't put, you know, Yes Man or Horton here. Bruce Almighty's good. Bruce Almighty's good. Give, you gotta give that Did one. Did you see better. the Sonic movie? <laughs> no. <laughs> I forgot that existed. I didn't see it either, but uh, Pops was saying that it was a... That he did a good Eggman or whatever. Kick-Ass 2? Kick-Ass 2 was alright. Not as good as Kick-Ass 1. <laughs> I never saw it. I didn't like Kick-Ass 1. I, did, so. I didn't see Dumb and Dumber 2. I did not see that movie. Oh, no one did. <laughs> no one did. So, anyways, enough about Jim Carrey, and let's talk about the two movies we've got featured in today's episode. We've got two horror classics, although I believe you would dispute that claim about one of them. But we've got Halloween, John Carpenter's original masterpiece of a film, and The House by the Cemetery, the film by Lucio Fulci. Both are available on Shudder, which is awesome. This is, I think, the first time this has happened where not only are both films available on streaming, but both on the same platform, which is great. You only have to steal one person's password. And I believe The House by the Cemetery is also on Showtime Anytime for some reason. I don't know why. Do you imagine just flipping through channels and you stumble upon this showing on Showtime? You're like, what the hell? What time could this even be played on regular TV? Like, <laughs> this is like 3 a.m. Yeah, mean, right? like, yeah, it's gotta be. It's gotta be. It's nothing you want to see before. <laughs> even on a premium cable network, I can't imagine anyone showing this at 10 p.m. The only time I'd put this on is 11.45, maybe. <laughs> okay well that's why it's our second feature slightly before midnight maybe yeah well that's that's why it's second in our lineup whereas halloween i don't want to say it's family friendly but it, it i mean it is in comparison it definitely is in comparison honestly and when i <laughs> yes. whenever people are asking me about like i talk to a lot of people about you know horror movies i think one of my dating app profiles says that i like horror movies so people are always asking me about them I feel like halloween because it's just like jump scare more and like mental you know the mental freak out versus 
That's why the cemetery is like, you know, fucking gory, disgusting. Uh-huh. Like it's just a different type of horror. It's not for the every the everyday person. But Halloween anyone can enjoy. Yeah, even in comparison to other like more mainstream films. Like House by the Cemetery is this Italian video nasty movie that was literally like <laughs> video prosecuted nasty. in Britain when it was released. Like whereas like Halloween you compare it to other like Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, movies like that, movies that were coming out around the same time, and Halloween is kind of tame in comparison. It's scary, but it's not violent, it's not gory, it's not disgusting. Yeah, it's just beautiful work of art that really talks to the insanity of the white man, specifically. The American <laughs> white man. Yeah, the 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 bad guy, is he's got a mask that's like dyed white. It's like, what what does that say? Classic dig at all the nerds. Who? What's the guy's name that it's a mask of? Uh, oh, it's Shatner. Yeah, Captain Kirk. <laughs> <laughs> what a random little nerd out moment from John Carpenter. You say like a nerd out moment, and John Carpenter is a big science fiction fan, of course, because he did The Thing and uh, Escape from New York, like all that stuff. He was clearly inspired by like 50s sci-fi. He probably enjoyed Star Trek back in its day. But the reason they got a Captain Kirk mask is because it was the cheapest one. <laughs> like Star Trek in 1978, this is right before the movies came back. Star Trek was like a joke. It was like that thing your grandpa watched on TV. You know what I mean? Shout out to grandpas all over the world watching Star Trek on TV. So let's start off, man. Let's talk yeah, about Halloween, absolutely. man. 1978, Halloween, directed by, scored by, and co-written by the man, the master, the legend, John Carpenter. And this is a guy who, he has some really incredible movies and some very, like, very, very strange things. I just saw Prince of Darkness recently, and that's a pretty good movie, but it's... One of the strangest movies he did that feels more like a Cronenberg movie almost. Have you seen Ghost of Mars? No, I've mostly avoided like the 90s Carpenter. Oh my god, it was one of, I, I remember seeing it as a kid and like to this day, like I remember the whole movie. It was so bad, but like so he really went for it. Like he was really just taking the craziest things that could possibly be potentially on in a space and putting it on film and it was the wildest that seems kind of like the the pluto nash of like <laughs> horror movies pluto nash and i've never seen it so i can't really say oh my god you never seen pluto nash another movie i've seen a million times no i haven't seen that one either i remember as as a kid we had a i remember like being aware of it when it came out because as a kid we had like a cereal box advertising it or whatever and like oh this is you know imagine putting like beverly hills cop on a cereal box like eddie murphy you know, raw to go from like that to Pluto Nash, Daddy Day Camp. He really switched it up, but he's on his way back. Yeah, he kind of is. Dolomite is my name is great. Did you watch Coming to America? No, I haven't. It's like, all right. <laughs> so that's on his way back. Okay, work. It's like, it, like, it was really good. It could have lo- cut like, you know, 20 to 30 minutes of editing. And I feel like it would have been like really good. But it was like, some parts were just, it sh- was awkward. There was some cringe comedy in there, sadly. Well, I guess, you know, Eddie Eddie Murphy. He had some about cringe. as low as anyone's band. Yeah, I mean, Norbert. One of many <laughs> black men to dress up as women. Black comedians to pull that thing off. and uh... Yeah, Eddie Murphy, Martin Lawrence, Tyler Perry, like... It's an epidemic. I'm not a hotep in the sense that I don't believe Hollywood is emasculating these black men or trying to emasculate black men, but I do believe that there's some desperate, selfish, maybe maybe even perhaps like money-hungry black men who will sink so low to do these roles that they can hire their friends, family, you know, aunts, cousins, nieces for... <laughs> 
and they choose to just dress up as them themselves. It doesn't really take a lot of work, I feel like, to just put on, you know, a fat suit and a dress and just kind of, like, talk in an, an exaggerated black woman accent. Very demeaning yeah. shit, honestly. I don't know how that became a trend. Was Eddie, Eddie Murphy was probably the first to do yeah, it. I think I mean, it was, I think, I think it was, yeah, the, the Nutty Professor, which is, like... With, like, the clumps and stuff like that. Yeah, and then Big Mama's House soon after, and then Medea... <laughs> like you know took it to the next level well yeah Medea was was on stage well before film so that might go back to big mama's house era even i don't know i just can't get into you know any of that stuff i haven't watched any of those movies and well over i mean i've never watched a tyler perry movie shockingly like the one directed and written by him but uh, mm-hmm. i haven't seen like, yeah i mean gone girl we've all seen gone girl great, that great doesn't flick. really count. yeah great flick but i haven't seen like a nutty professor since you know early 2000s and same with like big mama's house like i don't watch those kind of things they're just awkward and strange but i'd rather watch those things than the house by the cemetery oh. wow <laughs> bold statements that, but anyways, we'll get into that. Let's get back to Halloween. All right, so we're in we're in Haddonfield, Illinois. It's uh it's 1963 Halloween night. It looks like a suburb. It could be Glenview. It could be maybe it's like Evanston or some shit. It could be anywhere kind of where it's near Yorktown. near Chicago, but like not in Chicago. And off right, the, yeah, off the rip, we're getting this creepy POV shot of a something small moving around a house, and obviously it grabs a knife. So you're like, oh shit, it's a little human. It's a little human hand. We're walking through the house. It's very voyeuristic. It's very like peeping tom kind of shit going on. We see a dude leave the crib. I guess it was the sister's boyfriend, and we go up the stairs, and we see, you know, Deborah Myers combing her hair naked, as women do post-sex, and this little boy just walks up to her, she turns, she says, Michael, all surprised, and then the knife goes up, and this little boy, Michael, murders his sister in a POV shot to start off this beautiful franchise that will continuously talk about murdering young beautiful women it's murdering beautiful women and also murdering dogs and dogs yes sadly so the kid you know he stumbles out the crib his parents find him they're looking at him michael and you know he's standing there you know blank face they take his mask off it's a clown clown suit he's got a bloody knife they they don't seem that concerned Maybe it's because it's Halloween. Maybe it's because white kids are crazy and always walk around with knives and murder things. You know, they experiment with animal play and all that kind of weird shit. I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I think it's also, it's it's 1963 here. So there's like an innocence to the era. This is before Charles Manson, before the Rolling Stones. <laughs> I don't know, before a lot of stuff. That is true. And so right. it's like kind of you see a, a kid with a knife and especially if it's your kid and you've never seen any signs any any kind of anything that would you lead you to believe that this is possible you wouldn't you probably wouldn't know what to make of this you'd be just like what well that's right there so there were no signs supposedly i guess yeah we we really don't know i mean it's not until the rob zombie remake where you get any kind of backstory to young michael and obviously that's not considered canon with this movie i really appreciated that rob zombie shit man i really liked it i liked getting a, a look into his background and what made him all crazy and i thought the little white kid that played him who i don't know who that actor is uh but he did a great job i thought so that's how halloween starts and then boom it's 15 years later we're current day of the film's release 1978 october 30th 
and we're introduced to this bald, crazy-looking man named Dr. Loomis, played by the great Donald Pleasant. Rest in peace to him. He was a trooper who kept his franchise going uh, in more ways than he will probably ever be able to realize. So shout out to his old ass. In more in more ways than he probably should have. Like when he keeps showing he up, just kept showing. I don't know what we're doing. He just he the more ridiculous the plot got in the Halloween series, like he kept coming back and he kept doing his goddamn. Oh thing. He, yeah, and Donald Pleasance. I mean, I th- I think he's a good actor. He's very good in this movie. But his he remained devoted to the series even when his character became more and more insane. Like in Halloween Five, and as you mentioned, the plots get more and more ridiculous like halloween six and everything it's like he keeps i mean he's this veteran actor he's in the great escape he's in some other classic movies he didn't need to go as hard as he does with this cheap little independent movie you know but he did and we're, we're grateful for it he's the the backbone and ultimately we'll see what role he plays in the end so it's the 15 years later we're introduced to to loomis explaining Michael, giving us the breakdown. You know, he keeps calling Michael it. This guy is a doctor. He refuses to humanize his patient or his subject. He probably would rather call him that. And how he's been trying to break through to him for eight years and then trying to keep him locked up for seven years. And, you know, just laying out how this kid is a danger to everyone and he can't be trusted. The nurse is trying to, the nurse that he's with is like, calm down, like it's whatever. But then we see that there's been an escape at the psychiatric hospital. There's people in gowns just kind of wandering in the night. No one looking, some of them are probably all drugged up still and like kind of aloof. And Loomis exits the car foolishly to go investigate on his own something or someone climbs on top of the car scares the nurse out and steals the car so this is a kid who's been in in you know he's been in jail or like a sanatorium i guess for 15 years and Mm -hmm. he can drive in the middle of the night it's very impressive kind of makes you think is this an inside job and we just don't know. Well, Loomis even has the line when he's talking with the guy that runs the psych- psychiatric hospital. He's like, yeah, he, oh, he, he was, <laughs> the guy's like, hey, he can't, doesn't even know how to drive. And he's like, well, he was doing very well last night. Maybe somebody taught him. Yep. And that's kind of just like a throwaway line, but it sort of ends up mattering inadvertently lot. becoming the backbone to Halloween 6 yeah. <laughs> in a way. It comes back in a weird way. The druid, the druid <laughs> it, it comes, it comes back, but it comes back in a way where they never draw attention to that. And I think that's in Halloween Six. If they wanted, I mean, we all know John Carpenter had nothing to do with Halloween Six, but it's like if they wanted to really sell us on the ridiculous ideas going on in that movie, give us that line again. Show us that. We we need confirmation of that. We need to be reminded of that. That would have been a good thing. They missed out on it. So Michael steals the car, and Loomis instantly knows. He's like, I know where this guy's going. And we cut to the next day. It's Halloween morning. It's beautiful. We're back in Haddonfield. There's nice houses. The lawns are very clean. There's no black people. There's no Mexicans. You know, it's America's (laughs) ideal of what peace and calmness looks like. And we're introduced to this beautiful young woman named Lori Strode, who will become the superstar of... Freaky Friday, Jamie Lee Curtis, and she's clearly a babysitter. Also an Eddie Murphy co-star. She was an Eddie Murphy (laughs) co-star. Yeah. Oh, wow. She's got some incredible bodies of work, man. She really... Yeah, I like like A Fish Called Wanda a lot, Knives Out, recently. Knives Out is... Still doing good work. Very, very good. She's still doing good work. I mean, the new Halloween movies rock. Well, at least the one that came out. I'm sure the next yeah, one. Yeah, there's only one been, that's been out. There's like two others are probably done by now, but... They will be very good as well. 
Freaky Friday, though. Don't sleep on it. And don't sleep on True Lies. Oh, yeah, True Lies. Oh, she's great in that. Yeah. Forgot about that one. So Jamie Lee Curtis is Laurie Strode. She's a nice young babysitter. Uh, She's walking around through the neighborhood. She bumps into this kid, Tommy, who tries to tell her not to go to the Myers house because Lori's, you know, she's a good kid. She's doing something for her dad, the realtor. They're trying to sell the Myers house where this kid murdered his sister 15 years ago. Uh, No wonder it's still on the market. And Tommy's like, don't go there. The boogeyman lives there. Lori's like not really afraid of it. She plays it off and she goes and drops off whatever she has to drop off on the porch. The camera doesn't reveal to her, but it reveals to the audience that, you know, there's a looming figure behind the door that's watching Lori. And from then on, for the rest of the day, this looming figure, who was Michael, will continue to stalk Lori, seemingly just because she stepped on to the stairs of his house. And I guess he didn't really like that. Yeah, if if you if you want to assign a motivation for Michael, not just for killing, but for specifically following her around, it really just is that she showed up at his house. Yeah, for seemingly, that's the only reason. So then we're cut back to Loomis now. He's, he, he knows where Michael's going. He, he knows this man so much. He, he's guaranteed that he's going to go return home. And for some reason, he doesn't call the police. He doesn't call, you know, the sheriff of the town. He doesn't call the FBI. He doesn't call the state police. He's calling ahead. He's, I think he might be calling the sheriff, but he's not calling people that will really get the job done. We all know that local sheriffs don't do anything but give kids, you know, DUIs. Well, not, not when it's a white guy. Yeah, anyways. exactly. You usually you let them slide. And you just patrol the town to make sure that the blacks and the Mexicans stay out. All right, we're in white suburban America. Places I still feel weird going to, honestly. You know, we get the famous shot of Lori in the classroom zoning out, looking out and seeing some guy looking at her. Michael standing there. She, the teacher calls on her. She answers the question perfectly, might add. She's a nerdy ass yeah, kid. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, she looks and then Michael's gone. Just, like, was it in her imagination? What was going on? And then, you know, school day ends, the kids are bullying Tommy about the boogeyman, a few of them run off the kids, and then one of them smashes directly into Michael. Kid kind of, like, gets freaked out. And I, and I like it. It's, it's Michael from, like, the shoulder down. Yeah. Seeing we don't get to see his face. face yet. And, you know, Michael proceeds to stalk Tommy, and I have to wonder, where's the school security guards? This is preschool shootings, I guess, though, back then. Yeah, it, re- it really is. We didn't have that type of culture. <laughs> there, was, there was no security around. There was nothing. There was no adults. I mean, as someone that went to, like, private schools and stuff, I never had a school security guard. We had, like, some security measures, like those, like, locks that you need, like, a key card to get in. But, like, I never had, like, a, a cop or a security guard at my school ever. Same for my Catholic school shit. Loomis is stumbling around. Uh, he's in a phone booth. I really don't understand what's taken this guy so long to get to Haddonfield. Michael got there in seemingly one night. I don't know what's taken Loomis so long to just drive to this well, place. He, well, he doesn't. Have, his car is gone. His car is gone, but like he, he can rent a he's car. He's a, he's, a, he's a doctor. Like He's got to know someone that can just give him a car. Like He seems like a reputable man. Like It's not that hard. Maybe back then it was really a lot harder to get a car. We see where he is, and he's in, like, a real rural area. Like, Haddonfield, nice suburb, you know, a Naperville-type town. But, like, he's just in the middle of nowhere. He's, he, for those that don't know, Illinois, and I know this movie wasn't shot in Illinois, but this is actually somewhat accurate, this part here, is that Illinois is Chicago and all of Chicago's suburbs, and then the rest of the state is cornfields. <laughs> and that's that's where Loomis is right now. So Loomis, he's in this phone booth. He's trying to call ahead that there's going to be someone at the Myers house that that's where this breakout 
prisoner is going, and he stumbles upon an abandoned car. Like a mechanic's truck or something. Yeah, then you kind of see, the audience sees that around the corner is a naked mechanic, and we realize that Michael is wearing the mechanic's jumpsuit. So he murdered this guy and took his clothes to get out of his gown. And Loomis doesn't see the body. Yeah, he doesn't see the body, which, even if he did, I don't really know what his dumbass would have done. Right. He wouldn't have done anything, and we'll see him continue to not do things besides, you know, bitch and moan about Michael's evilness. So now we're back on Lori. Uh, she's walking home from school through her Lily White neighborhood. She's joined by her friend, I believe Annie, because Linda, they left her behind because she was taking too long or some shit. But eventually, Linda... Wait, and, and I, I get these two mixed up. Is Linda the totally girl? Linda's the totally girl. She's the blondie. Okay. So that's PJ Souls from Stripes. And Annie is the brunette. Yes, from The Fog and Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. And the girls are like, you know, they're bullshitting. They're teenage girls. They're talking shit about, you know, prom or some dance and boys and teasing each other and, you know, trying to make plans or for the night. Two of them are babysitters and one of them has a hot date. And they notice that, you know, some creepy dude, Michael, is following them in his car. And he slowly drives by and then kind of speeds up a little bit past them. Annie calls out, hey, jerk, speed kills. And Michael stops the car, makes the girls feel kind of weird, like he's about to do something, and then drives off. And it was just a strange thing. I don't really know why she said it. This is maybe my least favorite scene in the movie. It's so strange for a few reasons. One, there's no way, even with the windows down, that he hears them. You know what I mean? Like, he doesn't stop and listen. Like, the stopping seems unrelated to her yelling at the car. Secondly, maybe it's the line delivery, but the way she says speed kills makes it sound like like she's saying it sarcastically and like she's yelling at someone who's driving five in a 25. But I think the movie's trying to imply that she's yelling it at someone who's going like 35 in a 25, which still isn't, I mean, that's speeding, obviously, but it's, it's still not like insane speed. It, that doesn't warrant a teenager yelling that. It maybe warrants a, a mother of a four-year-old yelling that, but like a teenager, like what, what would they care? Yeah, I didn't really understand it. I didn't get her, her delivery of the line. The delivery kind of did sound sarcastic. Why go out of her way to do but it? But that might just be, I mean... Other than Jamie Lee Curtis and Donald Pleasance, most of the acting in this movie is pretty bad. So, I mean, it could just be that. It could be that. Like, we, we just don't know, honestly. The girls are still on foot. Uh, next thing you know, there's Michael hiding behind the bushes, but conveniently only Lori sees him. You know, the girls go to try to check him out. He's gone. So now we're starting to get, like, damn, this dude is hes very fast. Like, he's there, and then he's not there. And he seemingly is everywhere. He's driving around. He's on foot. He's behind bushes, then gone. Like, this dude, he's a big guy. So, you know, the girls all say, peace out. Lori ends up home. She's in her room. She's got this, you know, these throwback. It's a throwback 70s room. Kind of looked like my childhood room in the 90s, which kind of shows you where... (laughs) How out of date were you? Where culture goes. Lori's back in her room. She's looking out the window. She looks down. She sees in the middle of her backyard where people are hanging laundry sheets another michael standing there for a second she like kind of looks away for her she doesn't even look away like she just kind of stares harder the camera cuts away the camera camera cuts cuts away to her her looking concerned but then we cut back to what she's looking at and seemingly 
there's nothing there. So now we're starting to think, is this guy this fast? Is Lori just kind of seeing this guy everywhere now? There's no way he could have moved away without her not noticing. Yeah, like, th- this one, I mean, behind when he's behind the bushes or the hedges, maybe it's possible that he could get away in time. But this one, there's no scientific explanation. Yeah, just a crazy shot. Like, we're really starting to get, like... Lori's kind of like a little paranoid girl. And this scene here, too, is it's the power of editing, right? Because Michael can't disappear when the camera's on him. And when the camera cuts to Lori, she's concerned, but she's not reacting in a way that makes it seem like she's seeing him run away or anything. Yeah. But then when it cuts back, he's gone. So the magic of editing, oh, the magic of filmmaking on display here. We love it, and they did a really good job with this beautiful, classically done film. Now, you know, the girls are reuniting again. We got Annie has come to scoop Lori. They're driving around. It turns out they're, you know, smoking weed. Before we even get there, my bad. We have to see Michael. Well, not see him, but we have to have Loomis go to the graveyard. For some reason, he wants to to look at michael's sister's grave they never really explained why loomis wanted to do this or he always said he's going home he's going home so i don't know why he ended up at the graveyard but he does yeah, My- michael or excuse me, <laughs> loomis seems certain of a few things that michael's going to do that are never really explained to us this being the big one it's just, i don't really know why he would visit the graveyard yeah. he's like uh, thinking like oh he's taken the tombstone but like why why would he have reason he he, he says it himself michael hasn't talked in 15 years he has he didn't say he's gonna do this yeah so loomis goes to the graveyard to look for you know michael's sister deborah her uh her her gravestone Judith. Judith, yes. Judith. Deborah Hill is the writer. Deborah Hill, yeah. That's the (laughs) Carpenter's writing partner, writing producing partner here. You know, the caretaker or the graveyard guy, the operations manager, I don't know what his title would be. He's like, oh, the tomb, the the grave should be here and it's gone. And he blames pot smoking teenagers, which I'm telling you, like, I don't think anyone has ever gotten high off weed and decided that they're going to go steal tombstones. Like, it just doesn't... No, this is a classic older generation doesn't understand what pot does. Reefer Madness. (laughs) Of course, we'll have to get to that movie at some point. But in my my neighborhood, we had something, I guess, semi-similar to what goes on here that was almost certainly done by pot-smoking teenagers. So so I, I grew up in a neighborhood called High Ridge, and we have this sign that says High Ridge. And a couple times the the letters for the word high were all taken and it was only high they didn't touch ridge i feel like that was probably pot smoking teenagers that one specific action definitely i mean i'm not saying i mean i don't i don't know for certain obviously but it's like eh, that's the only thing that really makes sense so we're introduced so now we're back at uh we're back in town Someone broke into the hardware store stole a couple knives some masks we're introduced to sheriff beckett who once again bracket 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 bracketology bracketology everyone's favorite 14 seed sheriff bracket sheriff bracket is blaming pot smoking teenagers on breaking into the hardware store yet again it just seems like you know while his daughter is smoking pot and you think that he ignored the pot smell of in the car so does Lori strode well, Lori strode thinks that he smelled it and he says he didn't yes. smell it 
I don't know if he smelled it. He just might be incompetent. I do not understand. It's possible he smelled it, and when he gets a chance to talk to his daughter one-on-one, he's going to talk about it. It's possible he smelled it and is choosing just to ignore it entirely. And it's possible he's incompetent. But I'm willing to bet if his daughter was black, he would have said something. He, he probably would have been more surprised that his daughter was black, but he would have said something. If, his, if the person driving the car was black, he would have said something. <laughs> imagine, imagine if, the, imagine if uh, his daughter is in the passenger seat and the man driving is a black man. Yes, imagine, imagine that. how pissed he would have been. Imagine my life for a second, and then you'll have that. <laughs> <laughs> so now the sun's going down, so you know the fucking bodies are about to start dropping, because it's Halloween night and Michael's out and about, and he's been watching these girls all day. He's been on Lori's ass all goddamn day since she stepped onto his porch. It's crazy. Loomis is back. He's laying down the bl- the, the backstory more to, to the sheriff. You know, the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes, pure evil, you know, all that shit so that, many you sh- great that you shouldn't be saying about you know your patient that you're supposed to be like working with and helping because he's just a bad doctor and a seemingly bad guy 70s psychiatry hit different didn't it michael was probably just you know a vagina away from having a lobotomy you know it's because he's a boy that they kind of probably let him rock for so long oh, yeah hysteria yeah exactly they would have just cut that motherfucker's brain up <laughs> <laughs> like what the Kennedys did. Yes. People aren't people aren't talking about that enough. And they aren't talking about what Ted Kennedy did either. We're not talking about this stuff oh. enough. <laughs> the Kennedys are the world's greatest monsters. They're the they're a real horror story. Ted Kennedy served like 30 years in Congress after he killed a woman when he was drunk driving. How is that possible? He got away with it. So Loomis is trying to tell the sheriff not to shut down the town. That not to check every house. Not to bring in more people, because they'll start to see Michael everywhere and they'll make a mistake or something. And you know what? I just don't buy it. At this point, I'm starting to think that Loomis has a real fucking hard-on for Michael and really wants to get him for himself. It's Como's border. Well, yeah, yeah, you do get the sense that it's personal, although we do get the payoff in Halloween 2 when cops are paranoid and think anyone is Michael. Absolutely wreck. <laughs> in that case, to be fair, he is wearing Michael's costume. So it's not like it's not like they just run over anybody in the street. They specifically targeted Ben Tramer because he was dressed as Michael for some reason. Ben will not be going to the dance with Lori. It turns out I got so excited because in in okay. So I guess first first off, for those of you that haven't seen this movie, obviously you should see it. But Ben Tramer is mentioned like twice over the phone because he's a guy that's interested in Lori. And one one of Laurie's friends is like told him that she's interested in him, even though she doesn't seem to be. So he's just a guy like he's some guy in high school, but he dies horrifically and wonderfully in Halloween, too. And maybe the best scene in motion picture history. And it's it's made all the better because we find out that it's Ben Tramer. It would be a great scene if it was just anybody. But the fact that they made it this guy that was interested in Laurie is just very funny to me. They had to keep, and then had to keep in, the story together. Yeah, and then in Halloween 2018, when when it became very clear in the trailer that um that we're ignoring Halloween two, we're ignoring Halloween four. Like Halloween, the original is the only film that we're paying attention to in canon. And I'm like, oh my god, he's she's gonna be married to Ben Tramer. Please make it happen. I just think that would have been wonderful. They do mention that she's like married and divorced like three or four times. They don't mention if Ben Tramer was one of them, but I'm holding out hope for a Ben Tramer return in Halloween Kills or something. 
So the sun's down. Loomis has his heart on. He's ready to go. Lori's on her babysitting gig. So we're, we're starting off strong. She's with this kid, Tommy. Tommy asks about the boogeyman. Lori says he basically doesn't exist. The kid looks out the window. He immediately sees Michael standing there being creepy. And yet, of course, Lori does not believe him, does not want to look. Did you grow up with, like, this concept of, like, the boogeyman as this, like, all-encompassing terror thing? I did not. I didn't either. I'm, I'm wondering, is that a thing? I know. Like, people in the 70s, did they grow up with that? When I grew up, you know, a half Puerto Rican household, there was definitely talks of, like, the chupacabra, but it was never like, it's going to come around here. It was like, that thing exists, you know, in Puerto Rico. Sure. So, it's not coming around anywhere here. Boogeyman, no. My Boogeyman experience was a movie, which I can't even remember, that was, the Boogeyman was the villain of the movie. I'm thinking of Darkness Falls, but I'm pretty sure that was the Tooth Fairy. I was going to say, it wasn't The Boogeyman by director Uli Lamel, was it? Because that movie sucks. I don't think so. It's from like 1970. It's a Halloween ripoff. It's from like 1979, 1980 or something. There was no Boogeyman in like my in my life. I For me, it was just Nightmare Before Christmas has Oogie Boogie. Ooh, good call. That's who I kind of always thought of when I heard the phrase Boogeyman. We got Lori's with Tommy. Tommy's seeing shit. Lori doesn't believe him. And then our girl Annie, she's with Lindsay. So they're on the phone, you know, talking shit. And Annie and gets, they're across the street. Yeah, and Annie gets something on her shirt. Immediately gets naked in the in the kitchen. I don't understand that. Uh, babysitters well, don't not, take. Not off. technically naked, but I get it. Yeah. Down to her loins, she's got a sure in uh, okay. her bra and panties. I don't know. Maybe maybe is she wearing a bra? I don't remember. She takes off the bra for a moment or maybe she doesn't have a bra but she takes off the shirt for a moment when her back's to the camera and michael's watching her but i mean once again being a a, a pervy pov weirdo always looking at someone getting undressed being naked this guy he's just sexually charged he's sexually charged it's nuts you know we got michael starting to play this game of cat and mouse you know annie uh, she's being annoyed because the dog keeps barking. She's got shit on her clothes now. And then the next thing you know, the dog's outside and Michael is murdering it because he is a psychopath. Well, it, it's a neat shot, though, when they because they pick up the dog. And again, you're seeing Michael shoulder down or whatever. And you're seeing the dog like dogs don't really have waists, but we're seeing like mid torso down and the legs on the dog, you know, as it's being held up, just kind of relax it's, it's a really neat shot. I think they might have shot it in reverse or something like that, because I think the dog brought its legs up. You know, Lindsay, no, Annie, has to go to the separate laundry room house, which is not a Chicago thing, or an Illinois thing, I should no. say, at all. No, those pipes are freezing yes. for half the year. So she goes to the laundry room, across the backyard, gets trapped in by accident. Michael's, you know, he's around, he's looking through the window, Annie tries to climb out of a back window, gets stuck, and Lindsay comes and helps her, that little, you know, sweet little angel. The whole time I'm thinking Michael's about to just, like, pop up and kill them both, but not yet. Annie and Lindsay, they go back to the crib, Annie eventually walks Lindsay across the street to Lori and Tommy, because she wants to hook up with her boyfriend who's coming soon. Her boyfriend, is it Paul? Paul, yeah. Yeah. Bob is the other one. So Annie's trying to, you know, get it in. She's got to get rid of the kid. So Michael ends up choking the shit out of Annie. Annie got in the car. She guess I guess she was going to go pick up her mans. Imagine having a girl, like, you know, come pick you up. 
and give you sex, like, that's awesome. She's not even showing up wearing pants. Yeah, before she can make it there, Michael chokes her out. So this is the first time, but not the last time, that Michael will viciously choke a woman to death. This man is out to silence women. He wants to murder women. (laughs) He wants to murder women. He wants to choke them to death. It's very sexual. It's very strange. It's very POV. But it's symbolic, too, is what you're saying. The, The... crushing their vocal cords yeah this strong strong young man like technically he'd be like you know like about 20 or 21 years old like he's a young guy i think there's a continuity error in this movie i believe because 1963 is 15 years ago a week or two before kennedy's assassinated great moment in american history <laughs> um he's and they so he's six then so he would be 21 but i want to say the end credits say he he's 24 like michael age 24 or the shape, age 24, or whatever, and it's like, well, that doesn't make sense. I mean, Halloween will have plenty or, of or maybe, or, or is he Or is he eight in 1963? Either way, he's not 24, and I'm pretty sure the credits say 24. So maybe it's like 23 and 24, and that's the error. Maybe it's 21 and 24, I can't remember. He also did not look eight years old. Like that's true. the kid that they had playing him. Like, that kid looked maybe, like, five. Yeah, I don't know. I'm a bad judge of children ages because i'm not around kids very often at all because i'm not a creep like michael so annie gets killed in the front seat of her car and it immediately cuts to you know the sheriff talking about how he doesn't really believe loomis and he thinks he's blowing smoke up his ass but for his own sake and to pretty much watch his own back he can't be looking bad on the job you know letting kids drive around smoking weed you can have that but you can't have people getting murdered (laughs) He's like, I'll stay with you all night. Not little as this guy know his daughter just got fucking killed. It's very sad stuff. Yeah. And then you see Annie being carried in the street, and Tommy sees it, and he's like, oh my god, the boogeyman has Annie. They shut him down. You're scaring Lindsay, and Tommy's starting to feel, you know, neglected. Probably will lead to some incel-like behavior in the future when women don't believe him. When he becomes Paul Rudd. Yep. Now we're on Linda, and Linda and Bob show up. And they can't find Annie. Annie's nowhere to be seen. So they immediately start hooking up. And once, of course, you know who's watching them hook up. Again, it's Michael. This dude, Bob, made a really weird comment. Something about taking Lindsay's clothes off. Some real pedo stuff that I never really noticed until watching recently. And it hit me me hard. (laughs) And I want to know, did did Deborah Hill write that line? Did John Carpenter write that line? Like, why did we need to know that Bob was a pedo? No. I mean, he's clearly making a joke, but even as a joke, it's like, you don't say that. She was a very small young girl, you know? She's like a seven-year-old girl. It's like, I can understand teenage boys making strange sexual comments about their teenage girlfriends, because I feel like that's what all teens do from, like, both genders. Right. But, like, this girl was, like, you know, a good 13 to 14 years younger than him. Well, and on top of that, Bob's got the, um old man glasses that make him look 40 so it looks even worse i mean overall i think it's safe to say none of the teens in this movie look like teens i think annie is probably the worst she looks like late 20s to me jamie lee curtis was like 20 when she made this which is pretty that's that's pretty age appropriate as far as like teen movies go you're usually casting people older than that although i think she kind of looks older but yeah none of them passes teens and if you give bob those glasses it looks that much worse so bob you know he goes to the kitchen to get a beer or water whatever the fuck dudes do after having sex and 
you know, he realizes that someone's around him, but I don't think he thinks it's, like, you know, malicious. So he's, like, looking around for... And then Michael comes out, picks him up, pulls him up in the air against the wall, pins him through the wall. Beautiful shot. There's no way a knife would have been able to, you know, go through a person and go through the wall and oh, stick yeah. out that much. But it's a cool-ass shot. Uh, then you have It's a wonderful shot. Michael. And it even surprises Michael. Yeah. Because the famous head tilt. The famous head tilt. I think this is the first time we see it. Watching and I think that's him. Oh, well, it's him appreciating his work, but it's also him kind of being surprised by it too. I think. And you start to wonder: Does he, Michael even like, under? Oh. Does he even realize how strong he is? And like, where's this crazy supernatural, you know, strength and speed kind of coming from? And you know, watch Halloween Six. You'll find some answers. It's the only way you'll get to it because this movie's not telling you shit. Which is great. I love that all of this is vague. We don't need, we don't need, to, I mean, as a lot of people complain about Michael driving and call that like a pothole. I get it. Like, I think someone who had never driven a car would be able to get in a car and put it in drive and move. I don't know if he's going to be able to handle intersections all that well. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, thankfully, it's 1978. He's not going to run into a roundabout. Because there are people in my town that have no idea how to handle roundabouts, so certainly Michael wouldn't if he's just driving for the first time. But, like, we don't need explanations for all of this stuff. It doesn't matter, you know what I mean? That is very, very true. So, now that Bob's dead, Michael knows that Linda's upstairs, you know, half-naked, and he's got to take her out, too. So, for some reason, Michael decides to throw on a ghost mat, a ghost sheet, to dress like a ghost, and put on Bob's glasses above the sheets. Awkward. I guess to kind of show to Linda that he was Bob. Like, I guess the glasses was the only thing stopping her from being super freaked out that there was <laughs> well, someone then, wearing a sheet. It's, it's, so, it's so stupid, too, because let's say Bob wanted to throw on a ghost sheet to scare her or to, you know, play a little prank or whatever. He's going to keep the glasses on under the sheet. Yes, unless... So Michael doesn't need to show up with glasses. I just didn't get it, but, you know, Linda calls Lori, and as soon as Lori answers, Michael once again chokes another woman to death because he hates women so much he can't stand hearing them speak. And Lori, at first she thinks she's, you know, hearing some In people. this case, I'm kind of with her. The totally was getting old. She, she, <laughs> she was like... <laughs> you know what I mean? Or I'm with him, rather. <laughs> she was like kind of confused, like if it was sex. And then she kind of took it serious enough that, you know, she goes across the street uh, to see what's up. And, you know, that's when we kind of see everything going down. Where she finds Annie dead on the bed with the Judith uh, Myers gravestone that Michael has stolen. Uh, she sees Bob and come from the closet, and she starts seeing all these dead bodies. Michael jumps out of nowhere. He slashes down on her arm. The most unathletic move of all time. He somehow, like, yeah. barely scrapes her with his giant knife, but it somehow also is enough to startle her and make her fall over the stairs and she's falling down the, the, the stairs and Michael's just kind of looking down at her and then her ass is we, on the We got to talk about this moment here for a few things. First of all, I love the shot of him kind of coming out of the darkness because just the, the lighting of this scene, it is so dark. It's kind of the, it's the bluish a little bit and there's enough light on Lori that you can see her clearly, but in the background, it's just dark and slowly just the William Shatner mask just emerges and that's great. It's great stuff stuff any hack filmmaker just you know michael shows up and but carpenter gives it that nice touch that you need and then also the equivalent of him having a wide open shot and just barely getting her arm 
This is LeBron James fast break. No one else on his side of the court just airballing a dunk. Not even like bricking a dunk. This is him just like whiffing entirely. Wow, right? that's a great comparison. Honestly, I really... <laughs> he just he just chokes. It's like it's like him go because every now and then you'll see uh you do see. I don't want to say a lot. You do see a decent amount of dunks just get bricked off the back iron or whatever. But every now and then someone goes up for a dunk and just loses the ball. They just like at waist, they've got the ball at their waist and it just falls out of their hands or just kind of goes up and they can't hold on to it. That's what that's what's going on here. Like he he just missed so much. Like he could have stabbed her in the arm, could have stabbed her in the back, he could have stabbed her in the head, he could have stabbed her in the neck. And what he did was yeah, it's straight. not even a stab. He kind of cuts her arm a little bit. Like kind of she gets he gets more shirt than arm. It's definitely shirt, like a lot of shirt. The shirt dramatically rips, <laughs> and you get like a little sliver of blood. Nothing, I don't even think it would require stitches, is how, you know. Yeah, probably not. I think you're right. Like, it was a pretty wild thing. Although she does fall off this, I mean, that hurts. The fall. What she does is a brilliant stunt. Whoever whoever did the stunt for this, is that's some great work. Imagine getting paid to just, you know, fly over stairs and all that crazy shit. I think being a stuntman or stuntwoman would be so interesting. I would love to see a Cliff Booth movie, honestly. Was that the is that the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood guy? Yeah. But like, no, the stunts are so interesting to me because no one knows who the hell you are. You're not a name unless you're like Kane Hodder and you're a name to a certain type of fan. You know, there are there's some exceptions. But like really you're just out there doing your work. If you don't show up to work, if they don't have you, the movie's significantly worse. A movie like this, a movie like any any action movie, right? Yeah. But they just never get the credit they deserve. I just think it's interesting. They really don't. And then you got guys like Tom Cruise who do their best to make you forget that they exist. Yeah, you know, and that's the thing too. It's that's kind of. I mean, don't get me wrong. What Tom Cruise does is incredible. It's impressive. But I actually think for I feel like he kind of has a negative impact on the stunt man or stunt woman industry because there's so much attention going to Tom Cruise is an A-list actor who's been around for 30 years and he's doing this that you forget that stunt men and women who aren't names do that kind of stuff all the time I mean maybe not literally on top of the Burj Khalifa that kind of stuff but like you know what I mean they're they're pulling off impressive stuff left and right and it's like huge news when Tom Cruise does something. The craziest thing is that you just said he's been around for 30 years. Taps came out. It was 35. They're almost 40. Taps came out in 1981. Like, that is Oh, I, I don't even know ago. what the hell Taps is. I know Risk, Risky Business is 83. You've never seen so Taps? Yeah. This is such a fucking Patrick movie. Oh, my God. Taps what, is... What does that mean? It's like a movie that you would love. No, it's about it's a it's about teenagers who work at a mili- no don't work they're at a military school and the school's about to be shut down so the kids steal the live ammunition and hold the school like ransom because they don't want the school to be shut down and it's got like uh, uh, Sean Penn I believe Sean Penn it might be Sean Penn's first role okay that sounds like Child's Play three makes break into electric boogaloo is what that sounds like it's got Timothy Hutton is the is the main kid oh no way it's a it's a Falcon and the Snowman reunion. And we got Timothy Billy Hutton, Sean Penn. Yeah, Billy Van Zant. Like it's a really fucking uh, it's a wild movie. Wait, the guy from the guy from The Sopranos, or is that no? That's, no, that's Steve, Steve Van, Zandt. Van Zandt. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, I'm like, what? I didn't know he was an actor. I thought he was just an E Street Band guy. No, this guy's in like Jaws two and and Star Trek. 
It's a guy. Okay. It's a, just a guy. <laughs> but it's a good-ass movie. Pretty interesting to see, you know, military people kill teenagers. It's the only time you'll see white kids get shot by the police. Okay. <laughs> this sounds incredible. So, as we were, Lori just got her ass stabbed or slashed or whatever, and she fell down the stairs, but she's on the move. She makes it out the house. The front door was locked, but the back door was open. You know, she's running down the street screaming. She rings some bell. Interestingly enough, someone turns the lights on when they hear her screaming and knocking on the door, but then the lights go off. They're ignoring it, and you kind of think about, damn, Americans can't be bothered. That seems like a very like a New York thing. And I know you're from New York, you live there, so you can go ahead and correct me if I'm wrong. But the perception of New York anyways is that no one gives a shit about you or your problems. And I know that's not entirely true, obviously, but like... It's it's very true and also not entirely true. It really depends. Yes, no, it's it's movie true. It's true in movies where if a woman is fending off would-be rapists on a subway train... Unless you're Charles Bronson, you're just going to ignore that, like in in a movie sense. Yeah, so in real life, I could say if a dude is catcalling you and annoying you on the train, no one will care. But if a dude whips his dick out, yeah, catcalling, sure. If a dude's masturbating in front of you, people will most likely be like, hey, and the crowd will come together then. But if there's no, like, you know, overt physical things going on most people won't give a shit no yeah i mean i mean i'm just i'm just talking about how new york is treated in movies and i'm talking about death wish of course because death wish is is classic movie the death wish series is the most accurate it's it's basically documentary depictions of urban living and urban decay (laughs) you ever watch death wish 3 it's it's set in the bronx no i haven't i probably should then because i love watching bronx things it's not the best, it's not the most flattering depiction. <laughs> A Rumble in the Bronx with Jackie Chan, classic. <laughs> oh, Rumble in Vancouver. <laughs> Jackie Chan, another Tom Cruise, or he actually puts Tom Cruise to shame with his stunts back in the day. We have way better, way better, but uh, these days I'll take Tommy Cruise. Well, Jackie's over over the hill. Yeah. I mean, Tom Cruise is too, technically, but you don't notice it. I mean, he's old, old-ish. So... We got Michael chasing Laurie, and by chasing, I mean walking very creepily. Laurie does one of the coolest things, I think, in the movies when she grabs a flower pot and throws it at the window to wake the kids up. I thought that was awesome. It's a hell of a toss, because she goes underhand, and she gets to the second story. It's pretty good. I don't think most people would think to do something like that. I think most people would have kept their ass running down the street until they got tired. Of That's probably true, but but she's severely slowed because she's limping and everything, yeah, so she's she got to get in. Uh, she makes it into the crib and then she immediately notices when she locks the door that she tells the kids to go upstairs and she sees like a window door kind of thing open. So she knows Michael's there. She's, you know, whimpering and crying, please stop or why are you doing this with some shit? Uh, she gets her hand on some knitting needles and Michael once again jumps out of nowhere, tries to stab her, misses again, and she gets him in the neck with the needle thing. This is a bit more excusable because he didn't have his eyes on her because he's like hiding behind the couch. Definitely an excusable one. The, the, the first whiff, like, that's just, he's, he just got in his own head. He did. He really thought like he, he it was like a, you know, a layup to win the game and he just kind of it's it's like, it's like one of those guys who's been thinking all all week about he's thrown his first uh, he's thrown his ceremonial first pitch out at a baseball game and he's in his own head about it and as he winds up he just loses control and it hits the cameraman or something like that. It really does happen. So Michael's on the floor, needle in his neck. Lori goes upstairs. She thinks it's basically over. 
Uh, she's telling the kids it's fine. The kids are like, no, it's not. You can see Michael coming up the stairs. She tells him to hide. At this point, Michael's just going straight for her. Uh, he only wants her. She tries to hide in the closet. We got another great classic Halloween shot of Michael, you know, destroying the, I guess, the shutters kind of thing at the top of the closet. Looking, mm-hmm. trying to like break into it because she locked it in the inside. And then she decides to grab a hanger and straighten it. Michael reaches down. She stabs him in the eye. He drops the knife. She grabs the knife, stabs him in the chest, passes out again. This time she really does think it's over. Uh, she's crying, you know, in the like the hallway kind of while we see the shot of Michael in the room. Uh, once again, Michael gets up in a really awkward way. This is the best shot of the movie. He I sits think. up like a robot and then turns his head slowly, like two very different movements. Yeah. Most people... Yeah, I love that it's the two motions. It That just makes it so creepy to me. He's not acting like a human. Not that he's like literally like a robot or anything, but it's just so not fluid. It's so just uncanny. Yeah, it, it, it's super unnatural. And, you know, Michael comes, he grabs Lori again, and, you know, this guy just won't go the fuck down. And then suddenly, our boy Loomis, he's here... He's been saying all along Michael would be coming back to the house. We don't know why he wasn't in the house uh, or why he wasn't around ever because he's just, you know, fucking was just being Loomis the whole movie. He was never around. Yeah, we got, we got to talk about Loomis. He was never around when anywhere. We're done with this. But he gets his shots off. Uh, he hits Michael probably all six shots in his little gun. Michael falls out the off like the, the window the balcony, balcony thing. He hits the ground. Loomis, Lori goes, was that the boogeyman? Loomis is like, as a matter of fact, it was. We go back to the the lawn. Michael's gone. Carpenter's fucking crazy sensor hitting. Lori's crying out. Uh, Michael's off into the night, and the movie ends just like that. So it's a perfect ending. Like, if if we never had a sequel, if we never had a Halloween sequel, if we never had Ben Tramer getting run down and blown up in the street, if we never had Buster Rhymes fighting Kung Fu, if we never had Paul Rudd's film debut, like, if this movie were just its own thing and we never had a sequel, this is, like, the perfect ending. Because up to this point, even we mentioned like all the instances where Michael just kind of disappears and you can't really explain it. But up to this point, Michael is just a human, you know, he's preternaturally good at driving given that he's never had a driving lesson but other than that he's just a guy and then this and i'm not saying like this is when you realize he's like supernatural or something but like this is at this point this is just like holy shit this guy maybe we can't kill him and that's just so creepy and that he's out there again perhaps he's coming right back into the house we don't know perhaps he's going to stalk laurie at a hospital you know, who knows what who knows what comes next? And I just love that feeling that this movie gives you or this ending gives you. Perhaps the franchise may take a bit of a detour to monster making masks or some shit. Oh god, <laughs> Halloween three is wonderful. It's one of the strangest movies ever. It really is. But uh so let's talk about Loomis just being like this horny old yeah. man that does nothing. He's a big failure. <laughs> horny? Is he horny? He's horny for Michael. Like, he wants Michael to well, himself. Okay. I, I see what you're getting. Okay. I'm like, what? He wanted Michael all to himself. It was very strange. He was a big ton failure, and he got six shots off. He still didn't kill the guy. So, like, did he really do anything? 
I guess. Like, yeah, well, this movie basically has it broken down where there's this kind of two plots, or at least two protagonists. There's Laurie, and that's who we spent the most time talking about, Laurie and her thing. She's being followed around by Michael. We don't really know why. Maybe it's just that she showed up on his porch. Maybe it's as simple as that. Maybe that's not even the reason. We don't know. And then there's Dr. Loomis, who's trying to get the sheriff to take him seriously, but he spends about half the movie just hanging out at the Myers house, and he does nothing. And the, the only thing he does is those kids that bullied Tommy show up, and he scares them off because they're they're doing like a oh I dare you to go up to the haunted house, and then he just like does like a stage whisper at them, and then they run off scared. And then all along he's been looking for like okay I I know Michael's been here I know he's been in this house because there's a dead dog with bites taken out of it Michael ate that dog but he's like I don't know where he is now. After he's just been sitting there for like an hour or for, I mean, for an hour of movie time, but for several hours, he sees the stolen car that he's been looking for all along and it's just parked there and it was always there. And then he's like, oh, Michael is here. And it's like, well, no shit. You already knew that. And then, like, <laughs> the, the revelation of the revelation of him finding the stolen car, it, it shouldn't really mean anything. And yet the movie... makes it seem like it it means everything but then really he shows up at the house where michael is where michael's terrorizing laurie because he sees the kids screaming and running from there and so like it's just strange i don't know i i just wish they could have given loomis more to do because he's important in like the first half and then really all he does is he's he's an exposition machine he he delivers his monologues about how evil michael is which are great like we i enjoy those speeches I would say that, but yeah. that's really all he does. And as a casual watcher of these films, you won't even notice this kind of stuff because it's so fun to watch Michael kill these people. It's so fun to get these... The, the, the synths are awesome. Uh, yeah, the music is spectacular. One of the all-time great horror scores. Jimmy Lee sure. Curtis is so fun to watch, but like none of this will come to you until unless you're like obsessed with these movies like me and Patrick and you watch them over and over again and you're catching yes. you're catching the pedo line. I think that's true. And you're wondering where the hell Loomis is the whole time and but if you're when your first ride, your first few rides, you're just so into it and if the movie flies by, it's like 90 minutes. Like we're fucking Yeah, I had definitely we hit the I ground running this movie at least 5 or 6 times before I realized how useless Loomis actually was to the plot. Yeah, same. <laughs> Big same. You just don't even, like, account for it until much later. And you're like, oh, this guy, is... I kind of want to go back and see, like, how many scenes does he actually even have? Like, how many lines does Loomis have outside of the monologues? Like, He has a lot you, of lines. You take out, just, they're, you take... they're mostly just the speeches. Yeah, if you take out the monologues just describing Michael, like, what is he really talking about? Okay, yeah, I mean, that's fair, yeah. <laughs> he doesn't really do much, man. He just talks a lot of shit, shows up, shoots some shots off. And, you know, one thing that they don't show in this movie is... We never get to see the sheriff find out about his daughter dying, and I want to see him That's freak true, out. Yeah. I wanted to see the freak out. I want to see him blame Loomis. Loomis got away with it in this film. It shows up. It, it happens in Halloween 2, because Halloween 2 takes place the same night, same just a night. little bit later. I love Halloween 2, and I'm bothered that they decided to not include it in the new series. I just don't really understand why. I'm not a big halloween 2 fan why halloween 2 seems to me it's so fun because it's it's the same movie in so many ways right it's you're sometimes you can sometimes you can have a movie part two like no 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 i i get that what i'm saying is it's similar to halloween but it comes off as because it's not directed by john carpenter it comes off as like this is what the original halloween would have been if it was made by a lesser filmmaker 
Okay. Because Carpenter has so many touches with his cinematography, the Dean Cundy cinematography, the guy who shot Back to the Future, Jurassic Park, a bunch of John Carpenter movies, great cinematographer. He just does something extra for this movie that I think most... Because there's nothing really that special about the plot. You know what I mean? No, it's, not it's at just all. a guy shows up and kills people, really. I mean, there's a little bit more to it, but not much more. And then, but Carpenter's just able to make it so compelling. And his use of music, and I mean, the score is largely the same in Halloween 2. It's a little dumber sounding in Halloween 2. It's a little more electronic, which I don't like. Even though Carpenter is a master of electronic music, to me, the Halloween 2 score does not sound as good as this, which is all just... It's a little bit of synth in there, but it's mostly just piano. It's beautiful. And also, if that wasn't enough, Halloween 2 does... Jamie Lee Curtis is phoning it in. She's just asleep in a hospital bed the entire time with an awful wig on. You know, So, so in Halloween 2, it's it's the reverse. In, in, in Halloween, Loomis doesn't have enough to do. In Halloween 2, it's the opposite. Loomis is doing everything, and Jamie Lee Curtis has nothing to do. It makes sense plot-wise because she's recovering from injuries, but I'm just saying, like, Jamie Lee Curtis... She doesn't really get moving until the end. ...is the heart of Halloween, and Halloween 2, they did her dirty. Yeah, she doesn't really get going. I'll give you that. Yeah. But anyways, we'll save that for our Halloween... We'll save most of that for our Halloween 2 discussion at some point when uh, we get to that. Looking forward to those days. Eagerly. (laughs) All right. Eagerly. So, Josh, what do you think of John Carpenter's Halloween overall? It's my tied for first favorite slasher film ever. It's a beautiful ride. Okay. It's inspiring. I hope to one day scare the inspiring. shit out of it. Inspiring in terms of writing and how well it's put together. Oh, yeah, in terms of like filmmaking, sure, yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's definitely one of my favorite movies ever. It's definitely a... As long as they, if someone says that they've never seen it, but they're not afraid of horror movies or like not into, you know, some people don't want to watch them. But if they're mm-hmm. cool with them and they've never seen it, it's like we're watching this immediately kind of thing for me. Great film. Great franchise. Even when it is not good, it's still great. You know? I love yeah. It. I mean, Busta doing Kung Fu is, is special in its own way. Honestly, it's this franchise, Halloween... And believe it or not, the Alien franchise are probably my two favorite. Actually, those are my two favorite franchises. And I'd put Toy Story as the other favorite franchise. Oh. Those are my big threes. Alien, Halloween, Toy Story. Interesting. So no, you're not a Lord of the Rings guy, Star Wars, Godfather, because those are like the ones that I mean, I, I would expect people to mention. I, I like Star Wars. I love Godfather. I'm obsessed with Godfather. And, you know, but... I still haven't seen the third Godfather, so I'm, I'm not one to talk. Godfather, yeah. I, was gonna, I would say that because Godfather 3 is not as perfectly classic as Godfather 1 and 2, kind of takes a hit for that versus, I mean, Toy Story is the best franchise. Every single movie is a 10 out of 10 classic. I still haven't seen Toy Story 4. Toy Story 4 is so good. It's so good. Like, damn, those motherfuckers over at, at they can really make movies, man. The Toy Story people are so good. It's so existential, the new one. You really should check it out. I think you'd really like it. What is a toy? Like, what is a toy, really? That's the that's the, the underlying theme. What the fuck makes a toy? Forky is crazy. Well, speaking of crazy, Michael Myers is awesome. He's cool. I do want to point out the way he struggles to get into the closet. Anyone out here that says Michael could beat Jason in a fight, just watch that scene. Jason's in, into that closet in half a second. Michael takes, like, five minutes it's no contest. I mean, Jason is definitely, <laughs> a, definitely a stronger... Jason's busting through that. Jason's not even using his arms. He's just walking through that closet. And, I mean, this is even pre-zombie Jason. I think I think 
Part 4 Jason is just, you know, busting shit. Part 4 Jason kills the dude. Part 3 Jason kills the dude with his bare hands. Part 4 also crushes his head against a shower wall with one hand. Michael can't do that. But Michael takes like five minutes to choke to choke Annie in the, in the car, which I love that. That goes on so long, but it's like in, in a creepy way. It's very like uncomfortable, and that's great. No, Halloween is fantastic. I love it. It's one of my favorite slasher movies. It's my number two or three, I think. It's up there. I'm a big Elm Street fan, and A Bay of Blood is up there for me. But Halloween is, you know, it's certainly a strong showing. Definitely a strong showing. Halloween and Scream for me. Scream is great. Scream is probably top five for me. Shout out to Wes Craven, wherever his soul is Yeah, well, I'm a big Wes Craven's New Nightmare fan would be. Wes Craven's New Nightmare is high up on my list as well, yeah. Yeah, you can't go wrong watching this movie at any time. So let's talk about movies that maybe you can go wrong watching a bit. (laughs) And that's The House by the Cemetery. Now, this is a movie that I... You, this is the first time you saw it, correct? Yes. I probably didn't prep you enough. And and in part because I didn't remember it. I mean, I had seen this movie before. I didn't remember it being this extreme. This movie is... It's probably... It, it, I mean, it might be the... No, I mean, I've seen Brain Dead slash Dead Alive. But I'll say this. This is the goriest, most violent movie i've seen that doesn't have a splash of comedy you know what i mean Yeah, there's nothing funny happens <laughs> any any movie i mean <laughs> i actually found the bat scene kind of funny but no that's every, fair that's every fair. movie i've seen that has this much blood it, it, it's exaggerating the blood and the gore to a comedic effect evil dead 2 tokyo gore police brain dead slash dead alive the peter jackson movie like those are probably the only three movies or so that i've seen that can compete with this movie in terms of just how much blood you see on screen and those are all pretty darn comedic like evil dead 2 is arguably more of a comedy than it is a horror movie brain dead i would say that's the case this movie is something extra it was definitely um something it really uh yeah it was a lot from the very get-go it's just a confusing film first of all the dubbing is well strange. and that's the italian the dub- italian horror never makes the, i shouldn't say never but usually doesn't make a lot of sense the plots tend to not be that important in italian horror movies i mean even the good ones like suspiria i think is a masterpiece and who ca- who cares about the plot to that movie you know what i mean suspiria is a masterpiece yeah that's a top five horror movie for me probably definitely top 10 but you know i mentioned suspiria dario argento we on this episode jim and i have covered a mario bava movie hatcher for the honeymoon this film from lucio falci there's there's the big three of italian horror directors there's bava there's argento and there's falci really to me there's a big two it's bava and argento falci is kind of like the guy that you invite him to the table because you have an extra seat i don't think he quite belongs there I am not, even though, even a few of his movies I really, really do like. Don't Torture a Duckling and The Beyond are both very good movies. To me, those don't compete with the top tier of Argento movies, of Mario Bava movies. Those aren't Black Sunday, Black Sabbath, Suspiria, Deep Red, all that stuff. Even though they are good, and they're better than this movie. This is not Fulci's best work. I just want to mention that because this, I'm assuming, is your first Lucio Fulci movie. Correct, sir. I, I mean, I don't want you to get the sense that I don't hold. Well, actually, all of his movies, <laughs> all, most of his movies are pretty similar to this in that they don't make a lot of sense and they're incredibly violent. But 
I'm just just letting you know there are there are better features from this director out there, and hopefully we'll do them on this podcast at some point. Well, we have all the time in the world, my friend. Yes. So with Dario Argento and Mario Bava both, I think they're great artists in their own right, and they just happen to make horror movies because they they use they have incredible cinematography. Bava usually was the cinematographer on his movies. They usually use great scores too. Fauci has those traits, and yet he tends to be a bit more exploitation-y, even though Argento movies tended to be very, very violent. Like, Fauci, there just seems to be just, I don't know, more of a celebration of violence and gore. And this movie, too, incredibly violent, not poorly shot, but not really the great cinematography I'm accustomed to seeing from him. And even the score, too, not that great, and also weirdly edited. This is a weirdly, maybe even poorly edited movie where there's there's a few instances where there's a song going, the track, the music track is playing, and then the scene just cuts, and it like cuts off like mid-sound. Like, the song doesn't end, the movie just moves on. And it's just very bizarre, and almost kind of amateurish. So I don't know if you noticed that, but it was distracting to me. Yeah, a lot of things about this movie were distracting to me. Sure, sure, that's fair. <laughs> Let's start with the opening scene. We get a woman in bed at this creepy house who's just had sex. She gets up to look for her boyfriend, finds him. He's hanging from something, and I think he's got scissors hanging out of his head. There's, like, blood everywhere. And then she gets killed. She gets a knife through the back of the head, out through the mouth. It's the classic Psycho 2 death scene. And this scene by itself makes a little bit of sense. It makes less sense when we kind of learn who these two people are. Because apparently the official word on this is that the man who we've seen hanging, but also with like scissors in his head and so clearly severe head trauma, blood everywhere, blood on his chest. He is alleged to have murdered his girlfriend or mistress or whatever, and then committed suicide. And I don't know if I'm a medical examiner, if I'm a cop, I'm looking at that body for a bit longer and thinking maybe he didn't do this to himself. Maybe he was hanged after the scissors were put through his head just slightly maybe yeah i mean there's a lot of strange stuff going on but so so this house is this house has like a weird power over it there's there's an old photograph of it that little bob bob being like a again i'm a bad judge of kids ages how old is this kid six five bob is like five or six about the same age as michael bob is like five or six but he's voiced by again italian movie so everybody's dubbed he's voiced by someone in their 40s probably why is his name this bob is... i've never well, met yeah, why is his name Bob? i mean it's an old person's name freaking out it, it, it was un... and we did have a bob in our last movie <laughs> it was very unsettling but off the rip when this kid was it is bob. yeah yeah well to me it's it's less the name and it's more just it's very clearly an adult making a fool of himself dubbing the kid. And especially because a lot of the dubbing, it's not just the kid's dialogue. It's he's playing with toys with these like little Hot Wheels kind of race cars and stuff like that. And so there's just like a 40 year old man going like he's doing those sound effects. It's so I that actor, that voice actor must have been so embarrassed to do that. And it's. It's one of the highlights of the movie, really, because it's just so bad. I mean, 
he was scarier to me than almost the final boss. Okay, yeah. No, I mean, classic annoying kid. I think if you ask a lot of people... I almost thought I he was the kid. bad guy. Like I felt like it was kind of yeah. set up that he was going to be the bad guy because he was so strange. Oh, God, that would have been interesting. Right? No, I think if you ask, ask a lot of people, Bob Boyle, that's his name, is kind of the Jar Jar Binks of Italian horror where he's just so obnoxious. I, for me, I don't think he's that obnoxious of a kid. I, I, it's just the the voice, the voice stubbing, and the naming of is, uh, it Bob makes it makes it just obnoxious. And the and the name Bob is just funny. Yeah, that's true. But I want to say, like this movie, if you find this kid really annoying, I mean, th- this is not many movies would kill a kid, horror movie or not. Most movies, a kid's gonna live. This is an Italian ultra violent horror movie directed by. Lucio Fulci. If there is a movie out there that would kill a five-year-old, it would be this movie. No, that's probably true from what, how you've described. So, it. if you find this kid, if you find this kid really annoying, you're going to be very disappointed by the ending. Yeah, you will be. I kind of thought that he was going to see his own right there, but they had other plans. Well, I mean, the ending's disappointed on for other reasons too, of course. So Bob has this photograph. It's of the house. It's of the house we've seen. There's a little girl in the window and. He hears her talking to him, like, from the photograph, like, telepathically or whatever. And she says, don't go to that house. It's not safe. Stay away. But his family is moving. He's got his two parents. He's got Paolo Malco, plays his father, Norman. And Catriona McCall, a Lucio Fulci regular, plays his mother, Lucy. They're moving from New York to Boston, which I guess this house is in Boston or it's it's in like Whitby or North Whitby or something. I don't know if that's a suburb of Boston, a neighborhood, but they're moving to that house. And then when they show up at the house, Lucy is surprised that it resembles the house in the photograph. So I guess they, they just had this random photograph that they had hanging up that I guess they didn't realize was the house that they're moving to. Or maybe the husband lied to her or something. Because they're moving to the house to do something. The dad is, he's a professor, he's doing something. And the previous owner of the house, who I guess is the guy that had the scissors hanging out of his head, again, supposedly murdered his girlfriend and committed suicide in the house. So allegedly. the house is spooky. Allegedly, yeah. I mean, <laughs> again, we got some lazy medical examiners, lazy cops in North Whitby. <laughs> we just, like, imagine, imagine finding like someone on the ground at the foot of a skyscraper oh this guy jumped off a building and it's like uh excuse me sir there's a knife hanging out of his heart and it's like oh that must have happened after no he clearly committed suicide it's like what <laughs> it's also funny because if a man fell off the empire state building with a knife in him and landed on the ground well yeah the, the knife would be gone the that, the, would, that body's the, in pieces body no you're right maybe not a skyscraper <laughs> he gets stabbed off a uh maybe a second floor house in haddonfield <laughs> Yeah, he he. Let's okay. You're right. I shouldn't have gone skyscraper. The guy jumps off BMO Bank Building in downtown Kingston, Ontario. You know, a good thirty feet high, but he's got, <laughs> but he's got a slit throat or something. Okay, you're not saying that guy committed suicide. Definitely not. So, anyways, in town, Bob sees the girl from the photograph. Yes. Who kind of looks like Lindsay Lohan. You know, your your Freaky Friday comparison, your free, another Freaky Friday connection. And she communicates again with him telepathically. She also stops by a storefront to look at a mannequin. And the mannequin's head falls off and there's a lot of blood for literally no reason. Like, And in, in once we learn who this girl is, too, it makes even less sense than it does here. 
<laughs> that scene was one of the more enjoyable ones, honestly. Oh, it's it's a fun image. I like it. I thought that yeah. the, I thought that there was some mental illness potentially at play, but none of these things come back to to mean anything. <laughs> uh yeah, very little <laughs> means anything in this movie. I think that's true. Yes. And and the little girl, the little Lindsay Lohan girl is named May, by the way. I don't believe I mentioned that. It's a beautiful name. I love when when people are named after months for some reason. My good friend September. Not seasons. Like summer. Summer. Summer is a bad name. Autumn, I guess, is kind of a name. Autumn is not a good name either. But I mean, it's like better than Fall. summer. But like, or like winter. Yeah. Winter. I know a lot of winners actually. I feel like. Do you? I think in my short career, I've had two students, maybe three, named winter as well. Interesting. But like, no, like April, May, June. January, January Jones, one of the most beautiful women. Oh yeah, sure. On the planet. August is the name. August Wilson. August Wilson, one of the goats. One of the goats. One of the goats. But uh, my hot take is Augusto Pinochet. Actually, I'm gonna leave my. I'm gonna leave my hot take (laughs) off the. About August Wilson. About Pinochet. About one of his works. I don't. I don't care about fences. No, not fences. Fences is the only one I'm familiar with. I'm sorry. I. It's possible I've read some other thing fences is when i before i really knew who he was fences is fire flames like he was on fire fences is christopher marlowe brought to life in modern day it's so great you know what that's a hell of a good comparison people were like who the hell is christopher marlowe <laughs> fences is like tom Berlane for the modern day it's so great it's so like this character is just like such an asshole and he's at one point he's like begging to be proven wrong and everything. I was like, oh, that's so Tom Berlain. It's great. Anyways, so at the house, Anne shows up. Anne announces herself as the babysitter. Anne is played by Anya Pironi, a beautiful woman with some of the most breathtaking eyes you've ever seen. She's in Dario Argento's Inferno. And the movie hits you over the head that she is the mannequin, or at least strongly resembles the mannequin that lost its head inexplicably earlier in the movie. Which, I I, I guess it's just for the audience, because it was the girl that was looking at the mannequin. It wasn't the mom. And this time when Anne introduces herself, she introduces herself to the mom, to Lucy. This is the omen, because the omen, too, has that, like, where the babysitter slash caretaker or whoever just kind of shows up at the house unannounced. And it's like, here, I'm going to be taking care of your creepy baby from now on. And, I mean, that's kind of what's going on here. That does go on a lot. Although there's a few twists with the Anne character, including one of which doesn't make sense. But, yeah, the mo- it's hitting you over the head that something's off with Anne because she resembles a mannequin, I guess. I don't know. It's It's very strange. Yeah, it's all very strange. What do you think was the, the purpose of that mannequin? Creepy visual. I think it's that. Well, I guess, no, no, come to think of it, never mind. There, there is, there is explanation now that I think of it. I wasn't thinking of this earlier. Oh, what is it? Of the mannequin. It's foreshadowing. Because the mannequin's head falls off. Spoilers. What happens to Anne? Yes. But I don't know why, why it's for, why May sees it. If it were like, I mean, okay, spoiler alert, May is a ghost. But like, I don't know. I mean, so like May Supernatural maybe has some kind of power where she can see that, but 
I don't know. It's just May definitely this, has this movie something. Hurts, hurts my brain. May definitely has something. I'm, she might. She she's like a little of the shining. You know, she's got a little shining to her. Oh yeah. Well, and again, we mentioned the Omen already. I think I think Italian movies in this day and age, seventies, eighties, especially the eighties, benefited from very lax copyright laws in Italy. <laughs> Italian movies are notorious for ripping off other movies and usually something more than just a detail like this detail from the omen or possibly this little girl and bob kind of having the shining a bit there's an entire genre of italian like mad max ripoffs there's an entire genre of italian uh, escape from new york ripoffs you know more john carpenter appreciation i guess coming from the italians um so this movie i mean overall i would call it an original movie the movie itself isn't a ripoff of anything but maybe there's sprinkles here or there where like okay that's the omen that's the shining this makes no sense so it's probably a ripoff of other fauci movie or fauci (laughs) dr fauci Fauci, (laughs) other Fulci movies that make no sense. Regis, could you imagine Lucio Fulci giving advice on vaccines? That's a movie I want to see. I want to see Lucio Fulci. Fulci. I want a Lucio Fulci pandemic virus movie. Uh, you get one. It's called Zombie. Here we go. Sort of. I mean, he did. He did zombie slash zombie too. I mean, he. I. I think that's a, just a disease that gets free. I know Hell of the Living Dead, which is a rip off of that movie, is a disease. I, I think zombie is a disease. I can't remember though. Zombie. Oh, and we do. I ought to mention too. We do see Lucio Fulci. He, he has a director's cameo in this movie. He's the fat, short, kind of bald guy who's talking to the professor when they're like outside near Central Park. And it's worth pointing out, too, because he's voiced by Edward Mannix, who I mentioned back in our Hatchet for the Honeymoon talk that whenever this guy shows up, and he is a staple of Italian horror, whenever he shows up to dub someone, I'm going to have to point it out. So that's our Edward Mannix. We get him for one scene. It's a small role. He's a bigger role in other Fulci movies. So it's disappointing to see him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or to hear him so little here sometimes the cameos you just you only got a day you got to get back to whatever the fuck you're you're working on well no no i mean i i understand the cameo being small but edward mannix as a voice i mean he's the lead guy in new york ripper he's a much bigger character in hatch for the honeymoon i mean i wanted more from edward mannix that's that's all i want that's all i asked for is he still alive I don't know. Probably not. I don't. I don't know. I don't even know what he looked like. He's just. It's, I just know his voice because he's in every Italian horror movie. <laughs> Anyways, so back to the house. So there's a couple creepy things no, about the interior dead. of the house. <laughs> Edward Mannix. He's been dead for a long time. Okay, that's Ni- right. 1995. Okay, well, you know, maybe he comes back as a zombie, like in this movie. <laughs> So a couple creepy things about the interior of this house. There's a there's a tombstone in the in, fucking like, like main living room. center of the room. It's creepy as hell. It's covered by a rug at first, but eventually Lucy stumbles upon it and is rightfully freaked out. And it's it's like a it's a tombstone. It's like one of those. It's in the ground. It's like what was the, the um, explanation if you've ever for been to, like how there, there there is an explanation that like in areas that old houses flooded like, a lot. Oh yeah. <laughs> ridiculous stuff which i don't know if that's a real thing or whatever i've but never heard of that in my entire life and i teach i mean i know when history. hurricane katrina hit new orleans there were so many like cemeteries that were you know yeah 
But this was like, level, wasn't this like, like ups- wasn't this like upstate New York? Yeah, this is Boston. <laughs> like, yeah, Boston. <laughs> maybe they, they have to worry about their nor'easters yeah, maybe a no, little bit. I don't know. Never heard of that. Never heard of that. But anyways, it, it's like if you've ever been to Westminster Abbey and seen like the Tomb of the Unknown soldier there or even a lot of other like names inscribed on the ground it, it's just it's a big tile basically and then so that's one creepy thing the other creepy thing is that there's a cellar that's locked, locked and they can't get in and one night the dad norman finds and the babysitter who i guess lives with them yeah, trying they to never get even explain that the cellar yeah it just kind of because there's a line later when Anne is dead but the mom thinks she's missing and she says oh maybe she went to live with her parents so so she is living with them so she's an au pair yeah calls herself a babysitter she's the nanny yeah she's mary mary poppins lives with the kids right yeah have you ever seen i've never seen mary poppins have, i don't have know have you ever seen the show the nanny no i don't even know what this is you don't know what the nanny is <laughs> no, no i don't it's like a sitcom i want to say from the early 90s back to the babysitter here the babysitter slash nanny slash au pair which we've got a babysitter centric episode here but anyways she's trying to get in there and the dad sees her and i guess stops her but doesn't say anything yeah why didn't he that was freaky it was freaky the weirder instances later on the mom catches and doing something really creepy and doesn't ask her about it it's so bizarre. It's like, what What are we doing? Because later on, she's mopping up blood. Yeah, so, like, that's why her entire story... I thought she was, like, a bad guy or, like, you know, involved. And then, like, what happened? Yeah, you think she's the, the babysitter in, in The Omen. You think she's somehow assisting the evil that, in this case, has not manifest itself in Bob, but the evil of the house. And at times, she definitely seems to be doing that. But then... <laughs> We'll get into it. But anyways, so eventually Norman is able to open the cellar door and he goes downstairs and he's attacked by a bat. And this scene is insane up to this point. This isn't the bloodiest scene of the movie, but this is one of the bloodiest things you've ever seen. Because he, he the, the bat's biting him and it's attached to his hand. It's a decent bat prop. You know, as far as bat props go, as far as fake bats go, this one's pretty good. It looks almost real. The scene is just, it's its so cutting. The scene sucks. It's, it's so bad, but it's disgusting. So the, the bat's biting him and attacking him, and his hand's bleeding, and then he pulls out a knife, and he stabs the bat. That and he last, stabs it, The and stabbing stabs lasts it, for like stabs um, two minutes, I feel like. Maybe three, it felt like. It's forever. insane. He probably stabs it a dozen times, and there's so much blood. It's like a scene from like Evil Dead 2, except it's not played for comedy. I laughed at this scene, actually, but I don't think it's, it's, it's supposed to be a horrific scene. But it's so excessive. It's just so dumb. This is when I started to realize what I was truly experiencing. Yeah, <laughs> and that's that's a fair that's a fair thing to bring up because the first scene is, you know, we see a lot of blood and the the death we get is pretty violent. But after that, we don't see any. I mean, we get the mannequin, but I mean, it's a mannequin, so I don't, you can see all the blood and guts you want on a mannequin, and, and it doesn't have the same feel to it. Uh, yeah. But this is also the moment where the family realizes, okay, you know, we've got to, we've got to leave this house. This place sucks. And then the real estate agent woman shows up at the house at, in the middle. She comes by at the middle of the night for some reason, and no one's home again for some reason. And she gets her foot caught in like the tombstone, the tombstone again, the tombstone that's lying down, that's part of the floor, and she's stuck in there. And then we see a monster hand approaching her very slowly, picks up like a fire poker or a pole of some sort and starts stabbing her and stabbing her 
and stabbing her and stabbing her. The scene goes on even longer than the bat scene, and it's even more excessive than the bat scene. And unlike the bat scene, I was not laughing here. I, this is just disgusting to me. I didn't really laugh at anything that happened in this movie, but I did feel, you know, disgusted by the scene, much less so than the bat scene. The bat scene was the most... Oh, the bat scene. Okay, so so we're reversed on this. But no, this scene is so awful. I still and, and think it, of the bat scene randomly. And, and like, okay. and like, I'll just be <laughs> I'm sitting so there. Sorry. And I'll just be like, oh my god, that was just... It was so long. Yeah, well, specifically here, there's a moment where they stick the pole through the neck, through the throat. Yes. And then pull it out and just blood gushes and you see like the perfectly round hole in the neck. And there's so much blood and all throughout this there's these like gushing sound effects like the sound is just disgusting. The sound and the sound effects were always just kind of like strangely put together and like the editing was oh, yeah. just off. And believe it or not, I have heard that this scene was supposed to go on for longer and be more violent than it is. Can you believe that? No, I can't. That's almost impossible to imagine here's why i believe it there's really two reasons one is that lucio fulci is obsessed with eye trauma most of his horror movies there's always something horrific that happens to an eye and we don't get that here in this scene which is the most prolonged elongated scene elongated kill death scene we don't get anything eye related here which is shocking if you've seen zombie if you've seen the new york ripper you're used to something going in someone's eye and a bunch of blood i mean there's there is a bunch of blood but more blood you know from the eye so i don't even know do eyes bleed uh i don't i don't, th- I don't think there's blood inside of eyes but who cares Fulci doesn't i think there's blood or, or, or... and the uh, the other reason why i buy it is in a shot, which is actually a really neat shot, when they're dragging the body away, you see there seems to be more done to her face than we saw. Her hair is, like, caked in blood. You can't see it that well, but I'm pretty sure her left eye is all fucked up. Um, so I think there was more to this scene, and, and I supposedly Fulci wasn't pleased with the effects. But, I mean, it is hard to believe in the sense that what we get is far more than we needed. And yet there might have been more. I wonder if there would be a way for us to acquire that extra footage, wherever it may be. So Norman learns a bit about the Freudsteins, who were the people that had built the house. And we see there's a tombstone, because the house is by a cemetery. There is a tombstone in the cemetery that's, I believe it's Mary Freudstein, that's the mother. And the tombstone in the house is someone Freudstein. It's the father, or the husband. I can't remember his name. Whatever. It's very clearly, it's like a Frankenstein kind of thing. It's supposed to remind us of that. Yes, it is. So, Bob learns from May, who he's hanging out with at the cemetery. She says that, oh, Mary Freudstein isn't actually buried here. And everyone thinks she's buried there, but she's not. And Bob doesn't really seem to care much. He's like, okay, whatever. And then, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm forgetting the important scenes. So, after the real estate agent agent lady is killed the next day it's Anne, the babysitter the creepy babysitter that's cleaning up all the blood yeah lucy the mother stumbles upon her doing this very suspicious act and says oh hey what's up what are you doing and then Anne's just like oh i made coffee and that's it that's the last you hear of that's it's so bizarre two times now they've caught her red-handed doing something incredibly suspicious and they just accept it they just don't inquire any further it's so bizarre it's because she's a white woman and they trust her for that 
<laughs> God, maybe. Innocent white woman? Well, at any rate, come to think of it, they never inquire further because the reason the real estate lady shows up is because they had talked to her about like, hey, we need to get the hell out of this house. And then so I think she was showing up to like take the keys from them or something. Anyways, the lady dies. And I guess to the rest of the town, she would just go missing or something because they don't find the body. They never inquire any further. So like once the lady is dead, they just accept, okay, we're staying in the house, even though they don't know she's dead. It's it's very bizarre. It's it's bad storytelling. I'm sorry. It just is. It's not really well written. <laughs> yes. Like, yes, it is very, very, very bad storytelling. Listen, there are Fulci fans out there that are going to be disappointed in us, but this movie isn't very good. It really isn't. I'm not, I, I'm, a, I'm easy to please. Like, I'm, uh, uh, my ranking system's out of 10, and it's very easy to score a 7 or a 6. And this movie didn't do it, This did movie it? didn't do it. It's more like a 4, maybe. This is this is probably a five. Maybe for a me. five. I mean, Maybe there's some redeeming qualities. Very little to none for me, but... honestly. Okay, well, how is it a five then? Five's like average. <laughs> because that's what I'm saying. Like, that's or, what or do you go the teach? Do you go the teacher method where like a six is failing, so like a seven is like barely passing? No, to me, to my, my average is like six or seven, and then if it's like under five, it's just like really poorly made. Like it's instead of just having a mm-hmm. bad script, it's also like poorly made, like the bad sounds and all the shit. Okay, so it's like it's, yeah, it's bad like creative like writing work, and you even like put t- the film together badly. Like you couldn't even muster up yeah a good quality filming, and this shit was like there's a lot of bad to the shit. All right, so. Eventually, Norman wants to do some research on the Freudsteins. For some reason, he drives up to New York to go visit the grave where Freudstein is supposedly buried, even though they have the frickin' tombstone in their house. What's he doing? Uh, being dumb? Uh... What is he doing? What is this? Because he, when he's at the cemetery, first of all, he says, he he's, tells his wife, I've got to drive up to New York. And then when he's at the cemetery, he's talking to the guy, and they're like, oh, you know, the official records are wrong. Freudstein isn't actually buried here. I don't know why everyone believes he is. And I'm like, I don't know why Norman believes he is, because he has, he he owns the tombstone. He owns the tombstone. <laughs> it's part of the house that he owns. Do you own tombstones? <laughs> What's he doing? If you buy a, a, a house that has a grave in it, do you own that grave now? I, th- I think so. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. The tombstone's on his property at any rate. He also says that, oh, I drove up here two hours, and I'm not an East Coast guy, but New York to Boston, is there? was there ever a time where that was a two-hour drive? Mm, literally never, ever, ever. Hove, even Hove Lane all the way. He's that's At, not... at best, maybe three and a half. <laughs> even that I've never heard done. Okay, like, yeah. It's like four to five. But So this is classic whoever's writing the... Well, first of all, this might not have even been in the script. The, the two-hour thing that could just be an American dub thing. But so, someone d- doing that dub thought it was like New York to Philadelphia or something. They just screwed up. It doesn't matter. Or Philadelphia to New York, I should say. I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't matter this movie has bigger problems than a little bit of geographical continuity i think you and i will both agree uh, definitely i'd agree on that for sure this is the, the least of, of, of the issues and coming in hot is Anne's death scene which i think raises a lot of questions raises more questions than answers so with the the bat the bat scene and then the Anne's death scene was when i fully realized that nothing would ever you know 
this movie's just made by a psychopath, and and it just doesn't matter. The plot is just yeah. Like the nonsense. plot the plot was nonsense at that point. I knew. Okay, yeah. So Anne, who we've been arguably hitting us too hard that she is, you know, it's it's almost too much hinting that she's evil. Like the movie's trying too hard for that. She notices that this cellar door is open. And she doesn't know where Bob is. So she's just like, Bob, Bob, are you there? So she wanders downstairs. The door closes itself and it locks her in. And she's screaming for Bob to help her because she realizes Bob isn't down there. And Bob kind of just takes his time getting there. I think he's talking to his toys or something. And he's like, oh, she needs our help. Let's go help her. And I'm like, Bob, this woman's blood is on your hands because she gets killed. I mean, in actuality, Bob wouldn't be able to open the door, but whatever, at least be there you know, to hear her last words because she gets stabbed or she gets her throat gets slit so many times that her head falls off. It's very like exploitation horror. We don't care about, you know, how difficult it would actually be to behead someone with just a knife because we wanted to behead a person, you know, do we, I would have been fine with the throat slash kill. Oh, I would too. But yeah, I guess. And this is this is where, like, okay, we did see the mannequin get beheaded earlier. We did see that. I mean, so I can look back at, at that and say, that's foreshadowing. But why? And why was it foreshadowing to May? But anyways, Bob gets into the cellar. He finds her head on the ground. He screams. And then he's locked out. And then the mom finds him. And she's trying to get him out of there. But she can't. And then the dad shows up. And, well, oh, she breaks the key. So she can't unlock the door and the dad shows up and he's like hey bob move your head and just swings the axe and it looks like lucio fulci almost got a five-year-old kid killed like the axe (laughs) i'm sure they measured it out but the axe is remarkably close to hitting that actor in the face yeah it's it's amazing it's great it's wonderful but this is almost a john landis moment it looked like (laughs) what a reference so they bust into the door but the kid has been taken by the monster and so the two parents go downstairs we see that we get the monster reveal and it's a lame looking monster it really it's just kind of like a warped face you know it's not too exciting it's just a monster he moves real slow he's adept with weaponry i guess because you know he beheads someone with a with a kitchen knife i mean that's impressive i mean this guy's this guy's strong we can tell yeah, strong and slow and boring and dull and yeah, stupid. Yeah, dumb and strange and ugly and... And ugly. It kind of looks like... This is like the worst-looking unmasked Jason in, like, a Friday the 13th movie, you know? Like, I could see them, if they completely ran out of ideas, giving Jason that face when his mask comes off. Like a frankenstein X thing. It's ugly well, yeah, and... Yeah, they're, they're like again going Frankenstein. The patchwork and something just thrown together. It looks like shit. It's supposed to look like shit but be intricately looking like shit <laughs> it's like ridiculous stuff yeah the movie was and then there's... truly one of the every single time they revealed more i was like damn i i really sat here and I, watched this i wanted less shit. every time we learn something new i'm like oh i wanted less from this movie there is a line this is the closest we get to an explanation but as the dad is trying to help the kid and his wife escape, he says something like, oh, that's Dr. Freudstein. That's Dr. Freudstein. He's come back as a monster. And it's just like, I don't know why he knows that. I know he he understands. He read in the library that Freudstein conducted some kind of weird illegal medical experiments and that they took his license away. 
So, I mean, as a viewer, you can kind of piece together, okay, yeah, Freudstein is the monster. But, like, he just got that from just finding out that he wasn't buried where he thought he was, even though he already knew where he was buried. Yeah. It's just strange. I mean, I almost, like, it's it's just the throwaway line, which I would say was, like, ADR, but, I mean, literally every line in this movie is ADR, so. Yeah, I'm trying, uh, I try, like, how did this story, like, come together, like... Did he, was he just it not, didn't. He just, it doesn't. He just, like, wasn't caring about, like, what was going on like when he wrote it. Yeah. Ugh. Anyways, he goes to have an awkward fight with the monster, and he stabs the monster, and pulls out spoiled meat, guts, maggots, all that stuff. Yeah, it was another very gross part. Yeah, but this is, I mean, at least we're toned down in blood here this time, because, I mean... But yeah, maggot maggot stuff's always creepy. It's always effective. Always. Maggots are some of the grossest things that exist. But then the Freudstein monster grabs Norman's throat and just rips it off. <laughs> because we need another extremely violent death. A lot of throat stuff. Yes. No eye stuff, though. Again, surprising for Fulci. So then Lucy and Bob run to... There's like... Because I guess the door's locked or they don't try and get back up the door but they run to these like little stairs or like a ladder kind of thing that leads up to there's a little bit of light coming out and that's from the freudstein tombstone because there was that crack that the real estate lady got her foot caught in yeah so they're trying to push their way through that and then the monster very very slowly approaches takes the mom kills her i guess we don't actually see that death do we Mm. Do they show it? I don't. I want. I want to say an hour forty minutes in. This is like the first bit of restraint we've seen from the movie. <laughs> this is the first scene where we had a moment where we had an opportunity to show the most blood you've ever seen, and we didn't take it. It's actually kind of shocking. Although I could be mistaken. Maybe you see something. I don't remember. I remember. Anyways, Bob is actually pulled up through the crack in the tombstone, and he's saved by May, the little Lindsay Lohan girl who's there with an older woman who we've never seen before. Oh yeah, he does. He slams her head into the he slams her head into the concrete. I guess I don't remember that. I'm still in shock from the real estate lady <laughs> getting getting her blood drained through her neck. Just I guess straight, everything else that comes beard. after just isn't the same. Okay, okay, I believe you. But like I had forgotten too. So I guess it I mean it wasn't as gross as Norman's throat shit. Yeah, Norman's throat stuff was at least brief. I mean it's it's gross, but again, nothing like the real estate lady or even the bat. Those scenes the bat are That is next off. level stuff. Yes. Anyways, Bob is saved by May and this one woman and in a twist that I certainly saw coming. I mean, I've seen this movie a few times, but I'm pretty sure I saw this coming the first time I saw it. May is revealed to be Freudstein's daughter, and she's a ghost. And the woman she's with, I guess, is her mother, who, the you know, the tombstone was next to the house. And I guess that's why May says she's not actually buried there, because in May's mind, because she's a ghost and her mother's a ghost, she's like, oh, my mom isn't actually buried there. So anyways, the bottom line is the twist ending is this little girl was a ghost and she's the one who saves Bob and the ending just kind of leaves you feeling like, what? what? What's going on? What is this? It's just the way that it all, every single step, I don't even understand what May's role is to 
this all? Like, I don't even understand. I mean, I, I guess the her, her being a ghost, the reason I say that's not shocking is because we already have the telepathic communication, you know, the shining kind of stuff. She did which have I know the shining kind of stuff. Those, the, two, the two people that shine in the shining are not ghosts, but I'm saying supernatural thing, indicative perhaps of ghosts, but also... You know, her being in the photograph, the photograph's a black and white photograph, which, you know, not all black and white photographs are of something 50, 60, 70, 100 years ago. But I did get like an old timey vibe from that photograph. It wasn't just that it was black and white. I think it was maybe the clothes she was wearing, which you couldn't see that clearly. But I I don't know. I mean, I just kind of like, okay, she's a ghost. And And the movie does draw attention to nobody else actually sees her. There's a scene where Bob tells his mother, he's like, oh, I'm playing with my new, I was playing with my new girlfriend today. And then even the mom is like, just thinking, no, you weren't, you little prick. And she, she turns to the babysitter and is like, did you see her? And she's like, no. So it's like, okay, she's a ghost, you know? It's like, we kind of know right there. But then again, that brings up the question of who the hell was Anne? Because I thought she was like a servant to the Freud scenes, but she gets murdered like what's going on? She, I, I, why did he kill her? His potential, like, you know. The best I can figure it, and I don't know why, but Anne was a servant for Doctor Freudstein. She wanted him to murder people. She wanted the house to consume people. So she did try and help Freudstein. But I think the Freudstein monster is indiscriminate. It just kills. That's all it needs. So it's kind of like, it's like that's Michael Myers in a way. A little bit. And, I mean, Norman does have a line where he says something like, oh, that's Freudstein. He needs to consume people in order to keep living. Like, okay, I guess, whatever. So so maybe it is just indiscriminate. But then Anne probably knew that. And why the hell did she wander into the cellar when she knew she was running that risk? I don't know. Like, I, I, think, I think really Anne was evil. She was also very dumb. Because, I mean, she goes into the cellar thinking that Bob wandered down there. Really, if I know there's an evil monster living in the cellar and this kid that I'm babysitting has wandered down there, I'm saying, okay, bye, kid. See you in the afterlife. Like, I'm not wandering down there if I'm going to get my, if I'm going to get decapitated with a knife or if I'm going to get my throat ripped open or anything. Also, we didn't mention this, but at one point when Bob and Lucy, his mother, go downstairs to look for... And they see like these two evil eyes kind of looking at them. Yes. You know what I mean? Those two like creature eyes. Yeah. And I don't know what those are. Those aren't the monster's eyes because the monster, I don't think you even see his eyes. They certainly don't look like that. Yeah. I don't know what they never circle back to that. Maybe that was like pieces of another human that were unused. Who knows? But they open, yeah, because when they're downstairs, you do see there's a lot of bodies kind of strung up. And I will say, this, this um, in, in a literal sense, this Freudstein monster has bit off more than he can chew. Because if I'm murdering, if I'm a monster living in a basement and I'm murdering people to eat in order to survive, I'm maybe finishing one corpse before I move on to the next. Maybe, yeah. Because he's, he's got, like, like pieces of, like, eight different bodies that are still there. I mean, maybe there are parts of the body that aren't really tasty. So you need to get a new, new new body in because, you know, you don't really like ankle that much. I don't know. You know, as a very sane, not insane white person, you know, these are not things that I consider 
So, any other thoughts on the house by the cemetery? Is it a complete mess in your eyes? It's Did a complete you mess it with every uh, fiber of your being. I really don't like it. I wouldn't want to watch it again. But if I had to, I would. You know what I mean? Yeah, gun, gun to your head, gun, gun to my head. I don't think there's a single movie I don't watch. You know what I mean? If I literally have to watch epic movie to survive, I think I'll still watch it. It's terrible. It's the worst movie I've ever seen. But I'll see Jack and Jill. You know. Epic movie. And so I, I don't... That's funny. <laughs> Big Mama's House 2 or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I've never never seen any of the Medea movies, but I'll watch them all. If it's going to save my life, it's going to keep me from having my throat ripped out. Oh, man. Yeah, I think it definitely seems like I enjoyed this movie more than you. Although, generally speaking, I didn't really enjoy it. So So little of it makes sense. So much of the gore is excessive to the point where it even turns me off. And I'm a guy that loves audition. I love a lot of movies that are really violent and sick and twisted. And this movie just, like, is unpleasant in a lot of ways. And on top of that, it's it's not a poorly made film. It's not a poorly shot film. I mentioned, like, some weird editing bits. But it is so it's not poorly shot, but it's not as well shot as most as most films from director Anthony Fauci. You know, I'm, I expect a little bit a little more out of the cinematography from Dr. Fulci is what I'm saying. <laughs> well, you get it in other places, I guess. It's big time disgusting. It is. And normally I well, I shouldn't say normally I like that kind of thing. I can like that kind of thing. I just usually want a bit more art to go along with that, and that was a little lacking for me here. That's very fair, honestly. So, a formality perhaps, but Josh, which of these two movies did you prefer? Halloween. The movie's so nice they named it thrice. Right? Because you get Rob Zombie's Halloween, you get Halloween twenty eighteen. Yeah. Damn. It is all Halloween. I'm I'm agreeing with you. Halloween is an excellent film. The House by the Cemetery is not so excellent, but I mean, I'll even say I prefer Halloween to a lot of movies that are a lot better than The House by the Cemetery, so it's not just this is better than this movie that isn't very good. No, Halloween is great, obviously. Everyone should know that by now. Everyone's seen it. It's on AMC 45 times every October, you know? <laughs> you have no excuses not to see it, or not to have seen it by now. yeah. I'm just really, really hyped for Halloween Kills. Halloween Kills, yeah. I'm very, very excited. So, Josh, how do you think these two movies work together as a drive-in double feature? Uh, Halloween's just a, such a fun, great movie, and the other one's just really bad. Uh, if you want to <laughs> do something where you watch so, something really good. It's a little good, harsh. If you want to watch something that's really good, and then watch something that's not so good, and compare it, and like be like, oh, that's interesting, then I would recommend it. Okay, yeah, I th- I think um, for me it's more like the second one is, is going to confuse as far as... you more than entertain you. So like, yes. you have to be down to be for yeah, some strange maybe. confusion yeah. and just being down to look at gross shit. You know, don't go in there looking for a story. Yeah, that's probably fair. <laughs> now I think though too <laughs> something that needs to be acknowledged is that of the things that you expect out of a horror movie you know like a modern-ish horror movie because i'm not talking about like 1930s you know frankenstein that kind of stuff what's like the thing that you're really lacking in halloween it's blood 
you see very little blood. You see like the scene when the when he kills the sister. You see a tiny bit of it when Michael misses the wide open layup on Laurie and just kind of scrapes her arm. And what's the thing you get in excess in House by the Cemetery? Yeah, too much excess. It, it it's almost like it's doing its job. It's it's making up for, for the blood that we didn't get with Halloween. And I think in that sense, it's an interesting double feature. Halloween is a much more mainstream, much more classic, much better film. But I think throwing a trashy sleaze fest behind it, like the house by the cemetery, is kind of interesting. Yeah, the most interesting part about the movie was that the the grave was in the house. <laughs> <laughs> And they're worried about Hurricane Katrina up in Boston or whatever. (laughs) Hurricane Katrina, Boston. Boston Strong. Josh, let us know where we can find you and your work. Oh, you can always find me at grandmasofiascookies.com, the music and culture blog, the number one DIY NYC blog. Come check us out. You can also follow me on IG and Twitter if you're into that which is just Josh Thanos underscore. All right. As always, Revenge of the Drive-In will return. Next week, listen to us talk about Final Destination, which, as of when we're recording this anyways, is available on HBO Max, as well as George A. Romero's classic Night of the Living Dead, which is in the public domain, so it's available virtually anywhere. YouTube, Prime, Tubi, Shudder, etc., So be sure to tune in next week and check that episode out. And until then, it's been great having you folks here. And Josh, thank you for joining me. It was my pleasure. I've had such a lovely time. I look forward to our next conversation. Absolutely. Let's do Reefer Madness and Halloween 2 or something. Who knows? I would love to do Halloween 2. Take care, folks. Be safe. 